following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, boys and girls, this morning we're going back to school. Now, I know you thought school was over for the holidays. But the school that we're visiting this morning is a school that never takes vacation. It's a school by which God trains us in affliction or chastening. Punishment and spankings is that of which I speak. And you have loving parents, and so you know that your parents do punish you. They chasten you. They afflict you. They cause pain in your life. But why? Because they don't love you? Because they dislike you? Because they're simply mean? No, you know why your parents punish you, why they cause you at times to hurt. It's because they love you. And through the very trials of affliction, through the pain they bring you, they are shaping you. They're seeking to see the Spirit of Christ remove sin from your heart and make you even now resting in Christ and more like Him. Now, that's the reality of the Christian life, as we read in Hebrews chapter 12. That is exactly what God is dealing with each one of us as sons and daughters. That if we, in fact, are loved by God, then He's going to bring into our lives throughout the extent of our lives, trials, testings, and afflictions. And you're well aware of the reality of the trials and afflictions of God in your life. But so often we don't take proper advantage of them. That's why we're going to school today. We're going to learn from Job's prayer over two weeks because I didn't want to, it was too much for one sermon uh, and so I divided into two sermons, and then also the second half of chapter 14 is so appropriate for the new year. And so, Lord willing, I'll preach uh, that text on January 1st. But it's, it's through Job's prayer here that God is teaching us about afflictions in our lives and what we're to do with them. That's when we fall short. What do we do with them? So we come in chapter 14 to the conclusion of this most remarkable response of Job to Zophar and uh, the other two friends. Uh, Job has uh, asserted his uh, conscience is clear. Thus he can hurl back their treacherous uh, abuse of him. He can come to God with boldness as he seeks to do in the second half of uh, chapter 13. Where it's a dangerous thing to do. Yet he can do so because he has a clear conscience. He, he knows that he is not going to be punished by God as a wicked person, though he knows he's a sinner. But he's, he wants to lay his case out before God. Um, he's, he said to God, either uh, summon me into your presence and I will come as a defendant, or let me summon you and I'll be the plaintiff. Um, and uh, that's a wrong approach on Job's part. And yet it's a proper desire to to find out from God what's going on in his life. So he continues now in chapter 14 with a sense of series of arguments of, of why God needs to heed him and, and why God needs to alleviate 
the extent of his pain and his suffering. So although Job gives these four different things here as arguments to enforce his prayer, he's come to realizations as he expresses these things that he wouldn't have come to uh, in his prosperity, at least it seems to me. And, um, and, and so that's why we look at these pleas really as lessons for Job and for us uh, in our afflictions. And see here that God uses our afflictions to bring us to a greater knowledge of ourselves and our ends and to cause us to recognize that life apart from the mercy of God is futile and hopeless. So God uses our afflictions to bring us to a greater knowledge of ourself and our ends and to cause us to recognize that life apart from the mercy of God is futile and hopeless. Now this morning we're going to consider the first half of this chapter. Affliction teaches the frailty and corruption of our nature. Affliction teaches the certainty of death. And then in two weeks, by God's grace, affliction teaches us the hope of life after death. But affliction also brings us to a point of hopelessness apart from the grace of God. So this morning then, the first half of Job, verses 1 through 12, 1 to 6, afflictions teaches us the frailty and corruption of our nature. And then uh, 13, uh, or 7 through 12, so 1 through 6, and then 7 through 12 teaches us the certainty of death. Well then, 1 through 6, look at your Bibles. Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. Now you also open your eyes on him and bring him into judgment with yourself. But who can bring clean out of unclean? No one. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. His limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Turn your gaze from him that he may rest until he fulfills his day like a hired man. Now, Job begins in verse 1 with simply a statement. We could say a, a statement of fact. Man, he uses a general word here for mankind. Man is born of woman. In other words, every man who has had a normal birth is short-lived and full of turmoil. Indeed, this is one of the lessons of wisdom literature, isn't it? So Solomon will say in Ecclesiastes 2, For what does a man get in all his labor? In his striving which he labors under the sun. Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. Surely many of you identify with what Job says here. You know, um, Eliphaz says the same thing in his first speech in, in chapter 5. That uh, as sparks fly upward, man is indeed born uh, for trouble. In verse 7 of chapter 5, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Job is reiterating this reality. Reality that he all the more realizes now. A reality that you though realize, I'm sure. Don't you? That life is a life of trouble. It's not a life of ease. It's a life with difficulties. And for the Christian, and this is why chapter 12 in Hebrews begins where it begins. For the Christian, this is set before us as a race to be endured. We follow the pattern of our Savior. But we must run that race. We must strengthen the limbs. We must strengthen the legs. And run that race before us. But recognize the realism of this statement. 
in your own experience. And boys and girls, you recognize this because it's going to happen to you as well. God protects you much when you're young. But understand that life, particularly life for the Christian, is a life that is short-lived and full of turmoil. Now in verses 2 to 4, he speaks of this turmoil, this frailty, both physically and spiritually. So in verse 2, he speaks of our frailty physically. So what does he mean that it's short-lived and full of turmoil? Well, it's, life's like a flower. It comes forth and withers, and it also flees like a shadow and does not remain. So you bring a bouquet of flowers to your mother for Mother's Day, for a birthday. It's beautiful. And, but in about a week, what is it? It's droopy. It's dead. This illustration is used throughout Scripture then to remind us that the longest that any of us will live is but like a flower cut. Grass, hay, harvested. In a matter of days, it is dead. It is withered. You know, uh, Moses makes that wonderful contrast in Psalm 90 when he contrasts the eternity of God with us. He says, you've swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep in the morning. That's dying. In the morning, they're like grass, which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it fades and withers away. When you look, or this morning I looked at a plant out on my deck and last night's freeze took care of it. It's withered. It's gone. That speaks to us of the frailty of our life. The shortness of your existence. You little ones, life stretches before you. It's kind of like on January you start waiting for the next Christmas. And it just stretches on, and you think it's never going to get here. And I tell you what, as it gets older, I think Christmas was just a year ago, just yesterday. That's the reality. But uh, regardless of how young you are, uh, the life of everyone in this room is frail. And it is soon to be cut off in the comparison to eternity. And then he uses another figure in verse 2. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. Now, it was a bright, sunny morning coming to church. And perhaps on the highway, you notice the shadows of the cars. And shadows are here and they're gone. You stand still. The sun passes overhead. And it's not long before the shadow is gone. And so the psalmist speaks of that in Psalm 144, uh, verse 4. That life is like a shadow. Man is like a mere breath. Another one of the scripture images, his days are like a passing shadow. We could say, here today, gone tomorrow. The shadow is a whimsical thing. It is only for a few seconds, a few moments, and it's gone. Another figure that speaks to us of the frailty of our physical life. Then he moves on to speak to us of the frailty of our spiritual life. In the next two verses... You also open your eyes. Now remember, he's speaking to God. You open your eyes on him. And you bring him, uh, and really it is me, into judgment with yourself. He begins with the idea of mankind. God opens his eyes on mankind. But God is bringing Job himself into judgment with God himself. Now, this has been part of his complaint, hasn't it? That God is uh, looking on him 
uh, too intensely, too harshly. Uh, God is, is judging him um, with a rigorous standard. And so what he pleads is, in verse 4, is who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Is this not a remarkable statement about original sin? Probably the first book in the Bible. Surely the first confession in the history uh, that we would have written for us uh, of, of original sin. You hear here what we read in our uh, shorter catechism. Wherein consists that sinfulness of that estate, wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein the man fell. The sinfulness of that estate wherein the man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin. That's all summed up in this very brief statement in verse 4. Who can make clean out of unclean? Rhetorical question, but with an emphatic answer. No one. Together with, then, all actual transgressions which proceed from it. Job is saying, I'm born with a sinful nature. I am born dead in sins and trespasses. Now, this is a prayer of a converted man. He's not trying to explain away his sinful behavior. But he's pleading with God to remember. We pray that in our own prayer. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? That's after Paul has confessed, that which I would not do, I do. That which I, I do, I ought not to do. It's really what Job is saying. I'm, I'm aware. I'm aware of the reality of the struggle because of the remnant of sin, that of which I've been born. I'm aware that I wrestle with sin. And so God, don't look so harshly on me. Remember, he feels, he doesn't understand yet the scope of what we're understanding. He thinks he's being judged for sin. But it is valid for us to plead with God to deliver us from the spiritual weakness that is in this as well. So what does Job do? Notice then in verse 5 that he reaches a conclusion. Since, all right, because of my physical frailty and because of my spiritual frailty, since his, man's days are determined, the number of his months is with you, his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Turn your gaze from him that he may rest or cease until he fulfills or satisfies his day like a hired man. Job pulls together the idea of frailty in verse 5 with three figures, three statements. His days are determined, his months, number of his months is with you, his limits you've set so you cannot pass. Now notice he doesn't say years even. He's, he's emphasizing now the, the shortness of life. He doesn't say, which he could have said, uh, that uh, his years are determined. But no, he puts it in, the, in a smaller compass. His days and his months have been determined by God. God has allotted to each of us the number of days that we're going to live. And that's summed up in the end of the verse that God has set uh, limits. And you can't pass beyond them. He set your life within a boundary. He has determined your life and your purposes. Very similar to what later uh, the psalmist will write in Psalm 139. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. Uh, when as yet there was not one of them. Again, a wonderful statement in Job of the sovereign purposes of God. He's confessing here. Uh, as an ancient believer that God has uh, foreordained all that comes to pass. 
Yes, God has ordained uh, the number of the days and months of his life. God has ordained the limits of his life, the physical limits. But God has ordained the physical limits, uh, the limits of his work, the limits of his suffering, the limits of his prosperity, uh, the time he's going to be called home. All has been determined by God. And so because of that, now he said this in, in chapter 7 already, turn your gaze from me, that, turn your gaze from him, that he may rest until he fulfills his days like a hired man. Now he, he keeps it here in the, uh, in the impersonal, but you know in chapter 7 he's prayed that with respect uh, to himself in the beginning of that chapter uh, where he says um, that um, it's not man forced to labor on earth or not his days like the days of a hired man as a slave who pants for the shade as a hired man who eagerly awaits for his wages. So I'm allotted months of vanity. Nights of trouble are appointed to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I rise? But night comes, I'm continually tossing until dawn. That's the idea that's behind here. Job's own experience, put now out in this principle. He's asking God to turn away this unrelenting, searching gaze. In other words, this weight of affliction. And remember, his affliction primarily is not his physical sufferings. It's the intensity of that gaze of God on him, probing and searching like a brilliant surgeon looking to the recesses of Job. And he's withering under this intense gaze of God. And so he asks God to turn it away until, and he uses the, again the figure of a hired man, but this time it's literally till he has made acceptable or satisfied his days like a hired man. Now a hired man can have difficult labor, but he can find some joy in that labor as he thinks about the rest at the end. The cessation for a period of time. The reward, it might be a hard bed and a piece of bread and a cup of drink. And yet, uh, there's something to look forward to. Uh, and, and Job is saying, Can, may I not have uh, even this? May I not have some satisfaction in, in my trials to know that there's something better waiting for me? And, and so he asked God that he may rest. And the word is really cease. He's saying, let, let the pressure of your hand upon me cease that I can rest a bit in these trials. And so what I'm saying here is that uh, from Job's argument, we learn that affliction can teach us the frailty and corruption of our nature and how we respond then uh, to that. And so we are short-lived. Our lives are frail. God wants us to think on that regularly. And as we think regularly on the frailty of our lives, we begin to get a different perspective on the trials that are in our lives that, in a sense, are short-lived as well. We also reflect on our spiritual weaknesses and our corruption. So now Job has turned these to pleas. And surely, you may plea the frailty and shortness and your spiritual weakness with God to turn away his hand. That's what the psalmist does in Psalm 6, isn't it? That's why we uh, read that psalm and why I was saying it and why I read part of it before we sang it. And that is, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me. I'm pining away. Heal me, for my bones are dismayed and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, Lord, 
How long? How long? There's no mention of you in death in Sheol who will give you thanks. I'm weary with my signs. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eyes waste away with grief. It's become old because of my adversaries. See, we're not going to blame Job here for, for, in a sense, for what he's doing. It's what the psalmist does. And Job becomes a bit peremptory and, and um, maybe somewhat impatient and proud in the way that he's approaching God. But it still teaches us that uh, we may plead with God the, the weakness and, and the frailty of our lives and the struggles. Or as Job would earlier plead, Lord, I'm not a rock. You know, take this away that I might not sin against you. Lord, I know my weaknesses, and I plead with you to give me grace and, and, and to sustain me through this time. But then it reminds us that we must indeed be kept by God. So we sang in Psalm 146, we don't trust in princes. We don't trust in, in men, our own resolves or ambitions. Our afflictions teach us, teaches you the necessity of resting in God alone and grace. Depend upon God's grace. Let your frailties remind you of your need of God's grace. Let every sorrow, every pain, every heartbreak remind you of God's grace and that sufficient supply of grace that God gives to every one of his children. And so in the first six verses, affliction will teach us the frailty and corruption of our nature and then how, how we should respond. Now, the next verses, 7 through 12, um, teach us about the certainty and the reality of death. This is probably one of the finest pieces of poetry in the Bible or in all of literature. The, 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 the similitude now, you see, notice the word for. So he's talked about shortness. He's compared life to these things. Now he contrasts uh, man women, children, two, two things in nature. And the first is a tree. For there's hope for a tree. When it's cut down, it'll sprout again. Its shoots will not fail. Though its roots grow old in the ground, its stump dies in the dry soil. At the scent of water, it will flourish and put forth sprigs like a plant. When we moved to Houston many years ago, I planted two oak trees in the front yard, each side of the sidewalk. And one flourished, and one died. And so I cut down the tree that died, but I left a little stump. Out of that stump, roots that didn't cause the tree to survive, a sprig came up. That sprig became a sapling. And the sapling became a tree. And if I showed you a picture today of those two trees, they're twins. You would not know that one came up from the roots. And there's hope for a tree. And that's a beautiful figure for exactly what's being expressed here. So it's cut down, but it can sprout again. The roots might be dead, but the, the very bit of water that comes into the dry soil, uh, it will flourish and it'll spring forth like a plant. So here's the contrast, that there's hope for a tree. But then Job says, there's no hope for a man dying in this life. He talks now about the finality, the irreversibility 
of death for every one of us. In verse 10, but a man dies and lies prostrate or wasted, he expires, and where is he? Now understand that Job is not here denying life after death. Some writers want to say that. But again, what does the psalmist pray in Psalm 6? There's no mention of you in death and Sheol who will give you thanks. He's talking now about the service and the activity of this present life. And all Job is saying that for this present life, the life that is his life, this life of pain and sorrow, of inscrutable difficulty, uh, of God's gaze and pressure on him, in this life, death is the end. Man is not a tree. He's not going to die in this life and come back from the grave. And so he's, he's pleading with God, as we'll see, just to slack off. Death's approaching and it's final. Could you give me some ease before I die? Changes uh, uh, the figure in verse 11. As water evaporates from the sea and a river becomes parched and dried up, so a man lies down and does not rise. This had been quite apt there in the, in the Mideast where we've already mentioned the wadis and they dry up. But we, riverbeds dry up completely. Lakes can, can disappear. Uh, and, and so he uses this figure as well, is that um, the, the, these things die, but even then there's evaporation. And by the process of evaporation, the water is going to return to the earth. But man lies down and does not rise until the heavens are no longer. And that's simply a figure to talk about as long as this present age exists, the normal course of action is that men do not rise from the dead. They have no more active service to God. No more praising to God. No more involvement in their families, as we'll see in two weeks. No, uh, for this earthly existence and the frailty of this life, death is the end and it is irreversible. But I think as a transition in the end of verse 12... They will not awake nor be aroused out of sleep. I think that, um, you notice I, I translated this in the plural, they will not awake nor be aroused out of their sleep is what it is literally. Now the Hebrew does change at times from the singular third person to the plural. But here I think he talks about man in verse, uh, the beginning of verse 12, mankind. Because this is the lot of mankind, mankind will not awake or be aroused out of his sleep. But look at the language, awake and sleep. Now, of what does that language remind you? Is that not the language of the Apostle Paul? Uh, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where he uses the same figure as he counsels the church with respect to death. We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who fall asleep. For this we say by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive remain will come to the Lord, will not precede those who fall asleep. It goes on to explain then the second coming, which we'll come back to next week. But simply the language. It's quite possible here that 
that this is the transition statement now, the finality of death, and yet Job is already intimating, as we'll see in two weeks, there's something more. He saw that himself. As Abraham, Abraham, the Savior said, would see my day and rejoice. These men were not ignorant of the reality of a soul's existence after death, of its communion with God, and of some great work at the end of the age by the Messiah himself. And so Job again is brought by his afflictions to taste the reality of death. That's what afflictions do for us, as you see. They should. That we are frail and we are headed very quickly to the end of our days. And we ought to use our days in for the Lord. You can't procrastinate. You shouldn't procrastinate. Well, I'll do that tomorrow. You know, maybe we don't have it tomorrow. Today is the day to use for the Lord. You don't live on borrowed time. You don't live in the reality. Uh, a deacon at the church at Shiloh. I got a text last weekend. Good friend, Peter. Diagnosed sick, dead a week later. A week later. And that could happen to any of us. Children get cancer and die or get killed in car accidents. And we've had in Greenville all these pedestrians and kids getting run over on their bicycles and, and on the street. And what God wants you to realize uh, as he afflicts you is your life is frail. The death is coming very quickly. And he wants you to, to think about death. Now you might ask the question, because our catechism asks the question, why? Why must I die? Death, Logic Catechism 85, being the wages of sin, why are not the righteous delivered from death, seeing all their sins are forgiven? That's a good question, because death's a punishment for sin. The answer, the righteous should be delivered from death itself at the last day, when Christ returns, yet it is out of God's love to them perfectly. Uh, to free them from sin and misery and to make them capable of further communion with Christ in glory which they enter upon. Think about death that way. It's actually deliverance. Deliverance from the frailties, from as sparks fly upward, the turmoil and trouble of life, from uh, the spiritual corruption that we all yet have, death is deliverance from not just the stinging curse of death, but from sin and misery. And then makes them capable of further communion with Christ in glory, which they enter upon. And again, we all mourn our lack of love and communion, our inability in prayer and walking with God, and yet death, well, death brings us into the presence of God. And so in Confession, chapter 32, the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption. But their souls, we saw them die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being made then perfect in holiness, are received in the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved for the judgment of great day. 
That's the reality of death. It's the reality of your life. It's the reality of my life. So let me give you some lessons then with respect to uh, looking at death. Four things. In the first place, meditate on the reality of death. You, you don't like to, but you need to. So Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. Solomon is saying in his great Holy Spirit given wisdom, it is proper to meditate on death. It's good to take children to funerals. Some of you want to hide them from those realities, but no, take them to funerals. Take them to visit the very elderly who soon shall expire, uh, that they too might face the reality of death. You face the reality of death. You meditate, my dear friends, on the reality of death because death is indeed coming. Thus then, secondly, prepare for death. Prepare for death uh, in your physical life. You need to, if you're an adult, have made arrangements, if your children are young, for the, their care in a proper covenantal home. You need proper uh, distribution of your estate. You need to have a will, not leave that to um, your heirs uh, afterwards. Prepare physically for death. But of course, prepare spiritually for death. And you do that by being absolutely sure this morning that you're resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Him alone for salvation. Uh, for there is indeed no other hope. Christ is the deliverer from death. He is the judge of the living who now has come. Closely related in preparation for death, and that is keep very short accounts with God, but also with one another. Make regular uh, confession of sin uh, to one another. Live in joy and, and contentment and peace uh, together. And then um, fourth, and some of you will need this, don't be afraid of death. Death is a great big door through which the Savior walked and came back at it to sanctify that door for you. And so you need not fear death. As we read in our catechism, the sting and curse have been removed. It's but a passage for you. And so as you rest in Christ, you can die comfortably in peace. So we got our first two lessons in school, boys and girls, about afflictions, about trials and punishments and spankings from God. And that is that they teach us the frailty uh, of our nature, the corruption, the shortness of life. They teach us the reality of death. So in a more general way, then, how do you respond to afflictions? Well, in the first place, and as we've been seeing in our study uh, in contentment, you must not respond to your afflictions with murmuring and complaining. You recognize that they're God's school. He's brought them to you for his singular purposes. You not accomplish, we'll see this again in the class this morning. You don't accomplish anything by murmuring and complaining about them. You only will hurt yourself and those around you spiritually. So pray for a contented spirit in the midst of your afflictions. 
And then connection to that, you must learn patience. Patience with God. He doesn't normally give us simply a day's affliction. Not, not when it's serious, no. He brings us for a period of time. Remember, he's training you. And so you must grow patient. Now, and that's difficult. You know, it's interesting that, that James tells us that Job was a man noted for patience. But he's not always patient, is he? And so you recognize, as God calls you to patience, that you're going to stumble. And so you pray for God's grace to be patient with God. But I want to add to that that we need to learn to be patient with one another. Because, unfortunately, we are the cause of at least some levels of trial in each other's lives. And it, if you would think, when that happens, that he's as frail and she's as frail as I am, and they are as corrupt as I am, and that God actually has, is using them in my life. Remember, there's nothing that slips through. You know, it might be the driver that cuts you. It might be very minor, the driver that cuts you off. Or it might be the husband or wife that has spoken in the wrong way. We're to be patient. Because God has designed these things to teach us patience with Him. And with one another. And that's why it says that love covers a multitude of sins. We all wrestle with this weakness. This is why Paul says one of the great graces in the Christian life is forbearance. Bearing with one another. Don't be... Don't get your feelings hurt. I started to say easily. Simply don't get your feelings hurt. There's no room for that if you understand the overarching sovereignty of God. If you reflect on the frailty of life in that person and in you. And then use your reflections to set your mind on things above. You see, what God's doing primarily with our afflictions is remind us that there's something better than this life. And we are to long for it. We are to pant after it. As Paul reminds us in Colossians 3, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also be revealed with him in glory. Let every affliction turn your mind to heaven. Every affliction reminds you there's something better coming and that God's preparing you for that. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, holy God, we, we surely sympathize with our brother Job here. Lord, as he's wrestling with you and asking you would lighten your hand upon him and pleading with you. But, Lord, we know these are lessons that Job wouldn't necessarily have thought about in days of fat prosperity when everything was perfect and smooth and going well. Indeed, you had put that fence around him uh, of which Satan accuses you. And Lord, when you removed it then and you subjected him, then he, he had to begin to think about shortness and frailty and pain and corruption and death. And thus, Lord, even as he learns these things, he turns them into pleas and we ask that you'll teach us to learn how to plead with you, not in any peremptory or, or dogmatic or murmuring or unsubmissive way, but in humility to lighten your hand, to deliver us, Lord, if you will, but we also want to pray that you'll teach us these lessons, these lessons, Lord, that um, we're not to murmur and complain, 
we're to be patient with you and one another, and we are to set our sights on heaven. So bless these things to us this day, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.